0: The same power that seated Christ above the realm of the demons in complete and total authority. His name is above all names. That same power is the power at work to secure your eternal inheritance. says first of all that he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now let's take a look at this seating of Christ in power. This seating of Christ in power. We know that this is figurative language. It's figurative language because, well, it, it envisions God on a throne and we know that God is spirit so there's not an actual throne that he's sitting on. And because there's not an actual throne that he's sitting on, there's no right hand to that throne. So this is is figurative language, and we know that the figurative language is intended to communicate to us this image of complete authority, complete supreme authority, because this sitting at the right hand was a way of assigning to one a unique place of power and authority, because there's only one right hand. And that's the whole point of sitting at the right hand. There's only one right hand to sit at. You don't have two right hands. You remember when the mother of James and John, they were on the way from Jericho back to Jerusalem for the triumphant entry, and the mother of James and John comes and says, can, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit at your right and your left? Because one had to sit on one and one on the other, because only one can sit at the right hand. That's the whole point. It's a place of unique." power of solitary authority. So he's seated at the right hand. That brings to mind, of course, the psalmist words in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, your, enemies your footstool. And then he says, he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority. And dominion. So there is, of course, this recognition that there are spiritual authorities. There are spiritual powers at work. And Paul recognizes that and he's going to go a little bit further. But Christ is seated far above those. So it's easy for us to see what Paul's saying here. This, this aspect that, that there are demonic realities in the world. And Paul wants the reader to understand, okay, I get that. They're real. They exist. However, Christ is seated far above those. But then he also says, not only far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, but also above every name that is named. So why is Christ seated above every name? Why is His authority an authority that's greater than every name? This is something that's a little bit difficult. We've got to do a little bit of work for us to see and understand what Paul's saying here. And to do that, we just need to put ourselves a little bit into the context, into the thinking of Paul's readers. Because Paul's readers lived in a bit of a different world in which we live. In the world in which we live, we live in a modern-day world, obviously, and we live in a culture that has, sometimes we might doubt this, but it is a fact that we live in a culture that has a great deal of light. The light of Christ, the light of the gospel, is present in our culture to a greater degree perhaps in any other culture on on the earth. And because we live in a modern culture which has a witness to the gospel, a witness to the light, one of the effects of that is that the forces of evil work differently in our culture than in others. In our culture, in our modern-day culture, see, the forces of evil, they're not dumb. They're not stupid. And they know that in a culture of smartphones and, and internet and all, all the technology that we have today, the demonic knows that it must approach us differently. And so that's one reason why we don't really see the visible outward manifestations of evil in our culture, and our world, as some others do. But I think a bigger reason is because we do live in a culture in which light is here. And the presence of light, and again, we might often doubt this, but if you doubt this, just visit a culture that is dark and you'll see the difference. In a culture in which light is present, the demonic does not make the same kind of visible appearances, the same type of activities as they do in cultures that are darker without manifestations of the light. If you doubt that, just talk to a missionary who has lived and worked in cultures that did not have as a culture a representation of the gospel of Christ to the degree that we do. And they will always communicate to you. I've read and heard so many stories. They will always communicate to you that there are manifestations of evil that take place in those cultures that don't necessarily take place, at least not in the same visible way in our culture. Okay, So in Paul's culture, he's writing to a group of people that are very much in tune with using a name as power, of latching on to some sort of powerful name. It's something that's common. We see it common in the Old Testament. People would use the name of, of Baal or Baal or the name of Nebo or uh, other false gods, Mat. Or we can see it just in the New Testament context. And, and here in Ephesus is they would use the name of Diana. And in their mind, they were calling upon the, the power of a powerful name in order to invoke the power of that name. Let me just show an example of what that looked like. Hold your place here and turn over in your Bibles to Acts 19. Acts 19 is one of, in my view, the most humorous stories in the New Testament. It's a story about the seven sons of this guy named Skeva. And I can hardly read it sometimes without cracking up. But these seven sons of Sceva, starting from verse 11, and what we're just looking for here is just a flavor of what it was like to live in a culture that viewed a name as something powerful. And if I can invoke a name, then I'm invoking the power of that name. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their sicknesses left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to involve the, invoke I'm sorry the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So they don't know Jesus. But they have experienced Paul and his power that is a power that Jesus is manifesting through Paul. And they hear that name Jesus, and they want to use that name Jesus for their own purposes. So they invoke the name of Jesus, not knowing him. And the demons to whom they are trying to cast out, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the rest of the story is that the demons leap out of the man onto the seven sons, beat them up, they barely get away with their life, rip their clothes off, they jump out of a window and run away, and everybody laughs. So that that is just an illustration of the, the mindset of how we could invoke a powerful name and use the power of that name. Now, interestingly, where do you think that that episode of the seven sons of Sceva took place? Yeah, just look right up to the next subheading right above. That was in Ephesus. The context to which Paul is writing. So this is a context in which people... The believers there in the church in Ephesus are coming from a background in which they were accustomed to calling on names for their power. And Paul says there is no name above His name. There is no name that can be called upon that is more powerful than that one. Because not only is He seated above all powers and authorities... But His name is above all names. And of course, we know that this is repeated to us in the Revelation. It is the name above all names, or the end of that great Christ song in Philippians chapter 2, in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will confess that His name is above all names to the glory of the Father. So this is this is Paul's point here. He's trying to assure these believers, the one on whom you have believed his power is unexceeded in every conceivable way. He has mounted up these words of power in verse 19, but then he goes, up, goes on to say, the greatest and truest measurement of the power of God, the resurrection of Christ, is the same power that works to secure your eternal happiness. The same power that seated Christ above the realm of the demons in complete and total authority. And... His name is above all names. That same power is the power at work to secure your eternal inheritance. Now, verse 21, "...far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come." That word age is the word ions. We get our word eon from that, right? Sometimes we talk about, oh, this is this traffic light, I've been sitting here for eons, Right? It's really a misuse of the word because eon is a word that describes a massive amount of history. An incredibly long period of time that's characterized by one aspect or one characteristic or or another characteristic. That sort of thing. Paul's going to go on in chapter 2 verse 1 to use the same word. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's the same word, the course of this world or the eon, the period, the characteristic, the course of this world. So what he's saying here is that Christ is head above all. He's far superior to all powers and all names, not just now, but in the eon or the age to come. So there will never be a day. We will we will not rise from the dead to see Christ and at that time realize, oh, well, God told us about Himself and He told us about His Son and He told us about His Spirit, but He didn't tell us about this other power that we knew nothing about. That won't happen. Paul says in the next age too, there is not a power, there is not a an authority that is above His, there is not a name above His either now or forevermore to come. He says, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, all things under his feet, or he subjected all things to him, or put all things under his feet. And again, Paul's thinking back here to Psalm 110. That's that passage of Scripture in which Jesus confounds his enemies that, that are trying to trick him. And he says, well, tell me this one. When David prays in the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who was he talking to? Right? And they have no answer. Right, So it's that same passage of Scripture. And in that passage of Scripture, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool or put your enemies under your feet. And this is a picture of just total, complete subjection, total acquiescence. Remember a few weeks back we were talking about the triumphal entry and we talked about how they laid their cloaks down for the donkey or the donkey's colt that Jesus was riding on to walk on their cloaks. And that was this symbolic putting under His feet or putting themselves under Jesus' feet in a symbolic way to say to Him, we are here to serve you, to submit to you. Well, that was a manner of speaking in which Paul's talking about just a complete subservience, just a complete control, a complete subjecting to power of putting under the feet the footstool there. Gives us a pretty clear image. It's hard to confuse that one. We probably have a footstool at home. We've got a one at our house, Ottoman footstool kind of thing. And I'll go and I'll put my feet on that thing. And there's not a thing it can do. The only thing it can do is sit there and hold my feet. And that's the image that Paul is portraying, that all things have been subjected to complete subservience to him, whether they want to or not. Now, what's interesting to see is that imagery is never applied to the church. The church is never described as put as being forcefully or against their will put under the feet of God. Instead, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see a description of the relationship between God's people and God as a loving relationship of service, not one against the will. But this imagery is used for all things that no matter, again, back to Philippians chapter 2, every knee will, will bow, every tongue will confess, whether that is what you want to do or not. All things are put in subservience under Him, under the footstool, under His feet. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things, to the church so he gave him as head over all things to the church we have a little bit of a translation issue to think through here because if you're looking in the king james anybody have an italicized king james anybody looking at a it, italicized okay so italicized king james gave him what to be and to be is Italicized, right? And the italicized means that that's not in the original. Paul didn't say he gave him to be head of the church. Paul said, literally, he gave him head. He gave him head over the church. Now, our Bible editors rightly supply a verb there in order for it to flow in the English and make sense in the English. However, I feel it's pretty obvious that in in this choice in the King James, that was not the best choice. Because God did not give Christ to be head over the church. As our ESV says, God gave Christ as head over the church. The difference is he already is. He's not going to become the head of the church. Christ doesn't become the head of the church at the resurrection or in the next age. Christ is now. So God gave Christ to the church as its head. Now, here's the thing to see about this. God has given Christ to the church twice. He gave Christ to the church first as the humiliated, suffering servant who came to be our sin for us and be punished in our place and to be mocked and ridiculed and beaten and laughed at and rejected. But now he has given Christ to the church again, only this time it's not the humiliated suffering servant. Christ is no longer the humiliated suffering servant. Christ is eternally the exalted head of the church right now. Now, let me help with some application in our life. The application is this. You should train your soul to think of Christ in those terms. You should train your soul to think of Christ as the exalted head of the church, not the one who's bleeding on the cross right now. Christ is not suffering now. He suffered once. And that suffering is over. He will suffer never more. He is now the exalted head of the church. So much of the imagery of Christ is focused around this suffering aspect. We think, of course, of the Catholic church and virtually all of the Catholic church, church's imagery of Christ is imagery of suffering. The thorns and the, on the, cro- the crucifix. Now, understand this clearly. It is important and it is helpful to know That our Savior suffered for us, but He suffers no more. He is now high and lifted up, and He's given to the church. What a gift! He's given to the church as the exalted head, the high and lifted up one, the one who did suffer, but will never suffer again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at facebook nc. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.